If you have your Bible, you'll uh, need to open it to Revelation 7, or do you have it up there? Okay. Okay. All right. Um, I think maybe it's appropriate to say this. We're, Cheryl and I are at the tail end of the first half of our uh, COVID-19 hotspot 2020 tour. <laughs> it, it started in January um, when we slipped out of the U.S. before it was too late. And we flew from home in Montana to Seattle, and then from Seattle to Taipei, from Taipei to Singapore, from Singapore to Bangladesh, from Bangladesh back through Thailand, back to Taipei, back to Seattle. And while that was going on, of course, COVID was all over the airport, but hardly anybody knew it was. So that was the first part. And then the second part of the first half of our tour started, uh, oh, 18 days ago. So this is the last of our five stops, five states, um, going around preaching and so on. I mention all that stuff because um, it's kind of nice to end it here. I mean, some things many of you know and many of you don't. We, We were your first regularly supported missionaries. So we've been doing this with you since before 2000. And uh, coming here for me is weird in a good way. Cheryl was worried about what I'd say. Um, I'm a kid from Queens. I grew up in a mafia neighborhood, and I I really did. Um, Coming here is a little bit like the two New Yorkers in that musical Brigadoon who show up in the Scottish Highlands trying to hunt birds and this mythical village, Scottish village, appears out of the mist. And it does it once every hundred years. Nothing ever changes. Now, you live here. I know things change. Of course they change. On the other hand, it's same church, same vibe. It's a, it's a very welcome place, and I thank you for letting us come and be with you for, for a day. Now, we're going to go ahead. Let me read our text for us. It's Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. It, it is not typically used in mission conferences, and that's probably one reason why I use it. This is God's word. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah was sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 
12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Why am I preaching a text on the 144,000? I can tell you, having gone to seminary, that most seminarians avoid this text like the plague. Uh, Unless they're in a very highly dispensationalist church and the meaning of that text is scripted out and then they feel okay. But generally speaking, you don't really want to do it. Let me see if I can explain quickly why I think it's important to consider God's word in in this book, first of all, and then in the text. Let me try and summarize that. The first thing I want to tell you is that when you go on this COVID world tour like we've been on, one of the things that I've noticed that sticks in my mind is the fact that we're living in in a, what seems to me to be a chaotic world, a noisy world. I have tinnitus, so my, my, my ears vibrate and I get hissing and all sorts of background noise. The louder that noise gets, the harder it is to distinguish individual sounds and the harder it is to listen to the things you really want to pay attention to because those sounds are competing with all the other sounds. Now, I have a pair of hearing aids that I run through my iPhone. That helps a little bit because it can isolate some noises. One of the things that we need in our day right now is we need a set of hearing aids that allows us to hear what we need to hear that can isolate that sound so we can concentrate on it the way we need to listen to it. We're hearing all the other things, but but we're, in a sense, putting those things in priority. The voices we hear in our heads, the noises are intimidating. They're frightening. Never in my life, I mean, I was thinking about 1968 and race riots and Vietnam and everything else. I don't, I'm beginning to think this might be worse than that time was. So it's pretty strange because I never figured we'd go back to that. You hear voices of fear, mostly, and conflict. Most of the sermons I listened to, for three months at least, were all about why you shouldn't be afraid. Not entirely sure that helped much, but, but, but the reason was because people were afraid. It, it's a natural feeling. The voices of war, conflict, are all around us. Some of those voices go further. They're not just noise. Some of those voices seek to define who you are. Or direct you. They tell you how to live. They tell you what to think. They tell you who you are. It's nonstop. You can't turn it off. It's on your phone. You could stop it on the TV, but there are always ways in which you're getting messages that are not necessarily helpful. Often they're not. The more malignant of them are messages that try to speak to Christians. And what they want to do 
is they, they want to take Christians from being a, a presence that matter in the world. I really do believe that, and I, I travel all around the world. The voices that I'm talking about are voices that would be very happy if Christians in the world were nothing more than a cowering minority. Cringing, covering up, protecting. The problem, of course, is if you listen to any of those voices, you become like when we go to Costco, Cheryl always picks up cans of unsalted nuts. They're very unsatisfying, even if they are good for you. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if, if you eat a pistachio nut or you eat a cashew from that can, you go, there is something missing. Like flavor. I, <laughs> we need more. Well, what I want to say today is that there are two urgent tasks for God's people, that's us, um, so that we can avoid the prison of irrelevance, which is where the church is headed. I am an optimist. You can ask anybody that knows me. I think I'm a happy guy. But when I look at the trajectory of where we're going, I don't see a lot of happy things right now. We need to hear the voice of God over the, voice of, over the noise that's filling up the world. So that's one thing, hear the voice. Second thing, we need to get back to work. What, uh, what does that mean? I, I don't mean um, opening the schools and the churches and that. I, I believe in that too, but that's not my point. My point is that the principal job of the church of Jesus Christ is to be witnesses of the glory of God in the world. Now, I can back that up. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, it says we're made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God in the context of the Old Testament is to be made to be reflections of God, representatives of God, and relations of God. Try and remember that because it might be useful to you. We reflect, we were made by God to be reflections of his. The reason the New Testament says that Jesus is the image of God is he is the perfect, um, undistorted image of God. You see Jesus, you see God. You and I are being remade in the image of God to look like Jesus, aren't we? Every person was made to be a witness of something. You're either going to be a witness of what you were created to be a witness of, which is the glory of God and Jesus Christ, so that the whole world can see it, or you're going to mirror something else. We need to hear the voice that clarifies us on what that means, what that includes. The perfect voice for me to understand that is the book of Revelation. And this is where people start jumping out windows. Because I think, Joe, I swear, this, this is not preaching excess. I believe with all my heart that the most practical book in the Bible is the book of Revelation. Yeah, you heard me. Practical. 
The reason it's at the end of the Bible is not simply because it's talking about the end of the world. The, end of the, the reason it's at the end is also because it's written to living people. And it is God's last word to them. So my first thing that I'll say about Revelation, before we read the verses again, is it's practical. It comes at you like it's coming out of a fire hose. So it's hard. You can't keep up with it. But it is written with urgency to people who need it. You don't need it any less than the seven churches of the Revelation. You need it just as much as they did. Practical advice, sense of urgency. God wants us to know before he says omega. Second thing, there's a context to Revelation. In chapter 1, it says Jesus is the faithful witness, and so he is. We're called to do what he did. We're faithful witnesses. In chapters 2 and 3, he critiques the witness of the church, and most of the church doesn't come off too well, right? But what he's judging them on the basis of is their faithfulness as witnesses of Christ, In chapters 6 and 7, he talks about what the task of witnesses are and what the consequences of witness is. And then he carries that through in chapter 13, 14, and 15. Trust me on this a little bit. I've taught through, preached through the book of Revelation at least three times in my lifetime. The focus is on witness of the church in a persecuted world. That's what makes it so practical. Its message is that we have God's protection and we have his provision so that we can do everything he called us to do. So when you're thinking about the state of the American church and you get depressed over it, Book of Revelation is saying, nonetheless, you have God's protection and God's provision and he'll say to us in in a in a minute or two, in what way he protects us and in what way he prepares us. Revelation's call, we're being mobilized. Here's the part about the 144,000, all right? Revelation's call, Revelation mobilizes the church as an army of unconditional witnesses, armed with the word of God and our testimonies, led by Christ to spread the gospel of life to the world. You want a summary of the revelation? That's it. Verses 1 through 3 starts to unpack the, the details of that. First, that God redeems the fallen world through witnesses that are sealed from eternal judgment. That's what verses 1 through 3 is saying with, with the four winds and the four spirit and the four corners of the earth. Basically, what God is announcing is that God is the sovereign of the whole universe. Every part of it belongs to him. Winds in the Old Testament are symbols of judgment. 
in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 49, it talks about four winds from the four quarters of heaven coming to bring destruction on Elam. So here you see God saying, I'm going to, I'm going to bring my judgment. It's, it's coming, but, but before that eternal judgment falls, we're going to seal the saints of the earth. That means all the believers. What that means is that no matter what happens in the physical world around you, it doesn't matter whether COVID kills one half of us. It's happened before, several times. Could it happen again? Well, I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm, I'm dead sure it can. There's no science that can prevent that if the disease finds a way around it. Fact of the matter is we die. But what Revelation is saying that you will not eternally die. So no matter what you do, when I go to Bangladesh or I've been to South Thailand and other places that are, let's call them dodgy, I go to dodgy places kind of often. And I'm a normal person, well, sort of, but, but I, so I, I can be afraid of things. But I have to tell you, when I'm doing my job there, I am never afraid. I'm not, I'm just not. I know that when I'm in, with my brother Ayub in Bangladesh, I feel as safe as I was in my own bed. And the reason is because I, I know no matter what happens to me, I'm taken care of. That's a message that Revelation chapter 7 wants all of us to actually understand. God has control. And that God that has control loves you. He's claimed you for himself unless you don't know him. In verses 2 and 3, it specifically talks about sealing us from eternal harm. Now, the people in Revelation, those seven churches, they knew he wasn't sealing them from everything because they're suffering at the hands of their enemies while he's writing, right? So whether that's the Nicolaitans or whether that's the Romans or, or whether that's the, the, the Jews, it doesn't matter. His point in 2 and 3 is that they're sealed from eternal harm. I was reading his commentary by a guy named James Hamilton, and, uh, and, and the book's okay, but, but he had one little thing in there that just glued me. He, he says that, that what God in Christ did for us is greater than what Thetis did for Achilles. Now, if you're not completely literate on, on, the, uh, on the Iliad, Homer's Iliad, let me fill you in blanks. Iliad is a story about the, 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 the Greeks versus the Trojans. They're in this war. It's about heroes, basically. So there are probably lots of regular dudes out there, but fundamentally stories about the heroes fighting with each other. The greatest of the Greek heroes' name was Achilles. And the reason he was so great, or one of the reasons, is that his, his mom, who was a sort of a goddess married to a human, took the baby and dipped him in the river of death, the river Styx, because it would make him invulnerable to regular death. 
She only made one mistake. She missed the heel. So in the story of the Iliad, of course, the, the weakest, slimiest character in the whole Iliad kills the greatest hero, Achilles, when he shoots an arrow into his heel and kills him. So what James Hamilton is saying is the protection we have in Jesus Christ is vastly better than anything that, a, say, a hero like Achilles had. It's fantastic what we have in Christ. We are protected. Not from pain, not from human death, but we're protected for eternal life. We're protected from eternal death. You can't beat that. There is nothing that's better than, than that. Now, the world doesn't believe all that because it's a secular world now. So it doesn't think there is a heaven and earth and all of that stuff. Nonetheless, we know when we're reading that it's true. That we were made for better things. And that in Christ, God has protected us for that purpose. Not to sit on our hands or feel bad about how the world is more secular but to be his witnesses in that world. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to promote like missions and stuff. I'm saying you, you, every bit as much as me. That protection is yours. That mandate and calling is yours. And, and that's what Revelation, uh, those ber- verses are really about. Verses 4 to 8, you've got the laundry list, right? The people. When I came to Christ, first time I got confronted by this, I was stupefied. And, I, and then I couldn't figure out why, why it mattered. It's just a list of people. So I did a cursory look. You know what it showed me, right? Go back to Numbers chapter 1. You see another list that looks almost the same. And, uh, and, and my Bible said it's a census of Israel. So I just figured it's a census of Israel. It's the people of Israel. I counted the numbers up and I went, it's a pretty small number of people for a whole people. If it's a population census, you would figure it'd be bigger. 144,000 for all of Israel? You see where I'm going with this? Then I read the fine print in, in um, Numbers, chapter 1. And it, it's, it had a proviso on that, that these are all the men, 20 years and older, able to go to war. And I went, whoa, I'm retired military. I know what that list is. That list is an order of battle. That is not a population census. It is the army of Israel that's being described. So when I see it in chapter 7 of Revelation, I go, it's describing an army. Chapter 6 in the first part of 7 describe the army as being an army of witnesses. So that's your context. It's a strange list because it's missing two tribes that were on the list in in numbers. So then I, I did my detective work trying to figure out why is why are the tribes of Dan and Ephraim, and don't worry about the detail too much on this, why were they in the first list and not on the second list? I'll tell you what I think. 
In Judges chapter 18, the, the tribe of Dan set up their own pagan altar so that the Jews would not worship where they should. It's counterfeit. It's fake. So they're not... Hey, listen. They're not even just idolaters, right? Worshiping idols. They want you to be an idolater too. It's like setting up a, a fake town or something and then trying to get tourists to go to it. So those are the Danites. They're idol worshipers, but they also want to pollute the worship of God's people. The, the second one, the Ephraimites, it's, it's, they were a great tribe. They had a lot of people in it for, for that nation. They had a problem. They were not only idolatrous, but the, but the worst thing, the thing that really um, got them off the list says in Psalm 78 verse 9 that the Ephraimites armed with the bow, like bow and arrow, fled on the day of battle. When the fighting got hot, when it got risky, they turned their backs and ran. If I was recruiting an army, would I want the Ephraimites in my army? Well, how about no? No. Oh, I don't need that. I, I need people I can trust. So I believe that what we're looking at in, in these verses is the description of God's whole people. Armed for spiritual warfare. Constituted as an army with, with one leader, Jesus Christ. And in the context of the whole book of Revelation, they are carrying out the mandate God gave them to be witnesses to the earth, no matter what. No matter whether they die or they live or they suffer, they're part of that one army and they're sent on a mission. You and I are in that army. You and I are still on that mission. Now, last stop, basically, is something that... um, that the Bible gives us that helps fill in a few blanks. Okay, so we know we're an army. We know that we're an army of witnesses. We know that we're an army of witnesses who are faithful, that can be trusted. The one thing that helps fill it out is, are some of the, some of the passages in the, in the end of the New Testament the part of the New Testament that takes place in the time of persecution. So there are books, right? Book of James is one book. First Peter is one book. Revelation is one book. Hebrews is is one book. Book of Ephesians, late in Paul's life. He's in chains. He has some things he wants to say before he goes. We know them as as the verses about the armor of God in chapter 6. Let me just refresh your memory and then apply it to the army that we've been describing. What are these what is this army like? According to Ephesians chapter 6 and Revelation, the army is armed with the word of testimony, which is the sword of the spirit. We have the word of God. 
somebody says something to you and you're clueless, I, I get that. Uh, but you have the Bible, don't you? you? You actually have the Word of God. What Paul is saying in, in Ephesians 6 is this is no small thing. You're already armed with it. You use that as part of your bold witness. There's no sniveling in in Ephesians chapter 6. There's no ducking and hiding. There is a confrontation of the gospel and the world. It's unapologetic. It's direct. And through that word of, of the Lord... Through the word of truth, we slash through the world's lies and misdirection. People try to mesmerize you or or hypnotize you. Use the word of God. It's the one thing that you have that can bring you back to reality because the Bible is ultimate reality. Second, the, the saints are protected. They have a breastplate of righteousness. They have a shield of faith. They have a helmet of salvation. That that just harmonizes with revelation. You are protected in your witness. It's another way of saying, by the way, if somebody intimidates you and threatens you, what the Bible is actually saying, it is powerless to stop your witness. You understand me? Even if you die, you can Even your death becomes part of your witness. That's the point it's trying to make. So they're protected. They're trained. In in the book of Psalms, like Psalm 1 and Psalm 119, you're introduced to believers of people that are saturated with the word. They really know it. I mean, what people are saying these days is, with people even coming through seminary is that there's a growing level of biblical illiteracy. People don't focus and pay attention to what the word actually says. They've lost that discipline. But look, you can only get off track if you think that this is not a war you're in. If you actually start believing that this is peacetime, you're cooked. You are cooked. Like we used to say, nobody drinks Kool-Aid anymore, but we would have said they're drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh, no, no, it's peacetime. We're safe here in Niceville. No, no, no. No, you're not. You're under a constant threat, but you have Christ. You have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that has you under his protection. It's not because it's peacetime that you're okay. It's because God says you're okay with him. You see what I mean? So, we have warriors that are also led from the front. And that means that we follow Jesus Christ. When I was in the military, we had our commanders and command posts. Those command posts could be near the front, but they weren't the front. Alexander the Great, when they, when they uh, buried him, finally, he was in his 30s, he had 21 potentially fatal wounds on his body. Now, how'd he get those? 
He got him because whenever the battle started, Alexander was the first one in the battle, not the last one. That's the image we have here in the Bible of Jesus Christ. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it talks about, uh, about us being part of, of a numberless cloud of witness. And, and what are we doing? We're following Christ. We're his people. We're going where he goes, no matter what it costs. That's the story that we have in the world, in the word today for us. That's the gospel, actually. The gospel is we've been saved out of the world. We've been saved for a purpose. And then we've been mobilized to share our witness with the world. And everybody in this, in this room was created for that purpose. Last thing. We are warriors who stand in the storm. Any of, any of the people in this room that have been in combat, been in war, understand the truth of my statement. You want to survive? You have to do two things. You have, you have to trust your training and trust your buddies. You, you work out your training and you trust the men and women now that are with you. That's what you do. We stand in the storm. Warriors wear, another way of putting that is warriors wear practical shoes. <laughs> when, when my mom was young and I was little, women would talk about dressy shoes and practical shoes. Practical was another way of saying kind of ugly, but it didn't hurt your feet, right? Warriors were dressed in practical shoes. That meant that those shoes would not slip and slide when they're in the, in, in the heat of battle. It would help them root themselves in the ground so that they didn't move. That's why shoes are in Ephesians chapter 6. It isn't, the shoes are not about running with the word after people out there. It, it is about a fight and learning how to stand next to your mates and do the work that you were called to do. They wore practical shoes for fighting in the bitter, bitter battle with Satan. Another way of putting it is from Henry V. I'm not going to quote you all of the Shakespeare, much as I love it. I, I, I misquoted it for, that, for the name of the sermon. It should be warriors for the working day, not warriors for the waking day. But it describes English warriors at the Battle of Agincourt having muddy clothes, all of their insignia and decorations ripped off. They're all tired and exhausted, but they're ready for a fight. They don't look pretty. They don't look impressive. They're humble in a way, but they're ready to go. That's the message we get from that, and that's the message we get from Ephesians 6, and I believe that's the message we get from Revelation chapter 7. Uh, how do we close this off? Well, we live between the fallen world that we're in now and a new heavens and a new earth, so how are you supposed to navigate that? Just a few things as a thought. Uh, Number one, stop hiding from or accommodating the world. 
Now, that's true for any age, but it's especially true for you young guys that are yawning. Don't accommodate it. It's so easy to do. All you have to do is own a phone. And if you want friends, you have to accommodate. Don't. Don't do that. Because if you do, your witness will end and you will become just irrelevant. Your friends won't like you any better and you won't get any further with it. So, so stop hiding or accommodating the world. Persecution is a lot better than disrespect. And the church was not created for it. It wasn't created to be a doormat. It was created to be an aircraft carrier. We launch missions from it everywhere. It is, in a spiritual sense, a weapon of war. Second, we have the mandate by God to speak into the cacophony of phony wisdom in the world. We speak with authority. We speak with truth. You have to pick your fights. But fundamentally, don't, don't get yourself in anything that compromises your witness or gets in its way. Make sure that it's right there in the front. The avoidance of disease, the righting of racial wrongs, and patriotism that many of us have demonstrated can't be anything other than false religion unless Christ is at the very center of what you're doing. Almost to the end. We need to hear the good news that Christ is Lord and he's enlisted us to lead in his conquest of all there is. Amazing. (laughs) And the last thing to say to you is, let's get to work. Amen?